There's so much division in the world today, and the way that we argue, the way we approach conflict seems to have degenerated. It's like we've lost the art of respecting differences of opinions. It's like we're more concerned with being right and making other people wrong than we are of coming to the best solution. And I've come to believe that the only way we can really bring us all back together is through a song. Baby, I... Listen. Baby, I know... Hey, so what's, what's going on? Uh, it looks like the keys are refusing to participate. Wait, what, really? What's going on? Nothing's going on. We're continuing to make music the way it's always been made, the way it should be made. Typical low-key spin, avoiding the issue completely. The high keys are trying to make music, but the sound coming from the end of the keyboard makes it impossible. The real question is, do you want music, or do you just want low-keys sound? As always, the high keys are sticking to their talking points in their echo chamber, completely out of touch with what the audience actually wants to hear, which is low-keys. As soon as the low-keys stop looking out for their special interests and start making high-keys sounds, then we'd be happy to... how stupid they are? Okay, okay, I get it. I see what's happening here. There is a conflict. But the teams aren't the ones you think. It's not actually about high keys versus low keys. The actual enemy is a particular kind of love. And it goes undetected because of three crucial mistakes the human race made. And now we're caught in a pole that runs totally opposite to the divine design. It's such a big deal that some of the most iconic religious stories are directly about this issue. We're gonna spend this whole episode explaining everything. It's not gonna be a problem. So take it easy, I'm just gonna take care of everything. Curtis, just really though, you're using a cartoon keyboard to explain conflict? I mean, this is a very serious oh, okay. issue. So why don't you know? we just never use humor as a communication tool? Well, we just it's get not like sweet dry fast powder. It's just like, oh, I'm it a millennial, I need everything that in a cartoon or something That is not fair, I'm like a professional, that. my age guys, has nothing guys, to Sorry to interrupt, but I just want to point out, you're doing it right now. Oh. That polemic adversarial approach to conflict that this show is trying to help us avoid, it's happening right here. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah. Sorry about that. That's, that's yeah. kind of embarrassing because we fell into that so quickly, too. Mm. It really does seem like, actually, this is a really important topic to do for this show. Can somebody please tell us what's going on here? Yes, that's exactly what we're going to do. Hey everybody, welcome to Sweden Morgan Life. Today we're going to be looking at overcoming divisiveness. My name is Curtis Childs and I'll be your host. And this is my good buddy, Dr. Jonathan Rose. Hey Curtis. Uh, and I want to say thanks for coming. I know things got a little bit edgy back there. But I'm sorry about that. Are we cool? Yeah, I, we're cool. And we're sorry that you all had to see that. But it just happens to be this perfect illustration of our issue here today, mm. which is how do you get around this uh, antisocial, uh, venom-filled arguing that we do and it's that's like always a good thing to try to sort out but i think people these days feel like it's getting worse mm. there was a cbs poll in the united states where people were saying that american political debate is increasingly uncivil oh yeah it feels like the middle is hollowing out and everything's getting more and more extreme at the fringes and so yeah, on yeah exactly and this was people on both sides of the debate like everyone's admitting mm. we don't know how to do that <laughs> we're not doing this well mm. and i feel like at its core what we're looking at here is how do we react to differences? Mm. And actually there's a subset, like how do we react to differences 
in ideas. Uh-huh. So, okay, let me set up a scenario. Let's say that we were all robots. And okay. We just acted completely logically. There was no emotional baggage or anything like that. Let's say that I had a, like a belief about life. So I'm over here with belief A. Okay. And coming out of belief A is everything that comes with a, a belief about life, ideas and, and ways I behave, perspectives and all that mm. kind of stuff. Okay, and let's say I'm over here with idea B. Okay. And same kind of thing. And this is quite incompatible with what you're, you know, it's just a very different worldview over Right. Here. The, so these two don't have compatibility. Mm. And this is going to happen. It's definitely bound to happen. Like 100% of people don't have all the same ideas. So you're going to have some differences about ideas. Right. And if we were just computers and this was just running a program, it could make sense. So belief A and belief B are incompatible. So they put out some kind of opposing force. But as humans, what seems out of whack is the non-computer part of it, the emotional tone that we get into and the actions that those can lead us to. Sure. And, and at some levels, it's fine. So let's say right here, this is a picture of disagreement. You know, that, disagreement. That's, right. that's reasonable, right? Yeah. And it even makes sense that there would be passion, forceful expression, and so on. You can get up to this level because ideas matter. They have implications. All that. But all this up to this point is fo focused on the idea and its implications. Th mm. That's a natural response, but what feels unnatural is when it gets to rage, mm. venom, hatred. And it really comes down to the shifting of this opposition that it's not about ideas anymore. It's about, I hate you. And I'm not just saying that in a generic sense. Yeah. I'm actually feeling hatred for well, you Well, I'm glad right you now. said that because I'm feeling the same thing about you because you're ridiculous. Well, I imagine my hatred is actually greater than yours. Okay, so really? Because I just got a deposit of 20 million hatred dollars and I'm going to... We're doing it again. Oh, we're doing it again. Sorry, everybody. This is, that's the last time. But it does show that, that that can crop up, and it's not the way to go about it. No. I mean, we know long term. It doesn't feel good when we're no. fighting each other. And you sort of get into it at the moment. Yeah. But, but no, it doesn't feel good long term. When you step back from the situation, you realize that this is not the way to go about things. There are lo better long term effects from recon reconciling and being rational. It's even in the culture what it, Abraham Lincoln said, do I not destroy my enemies? when I make them my friends. So mm. we know, we know that this is better, but if, if this rage fire is actually an unreasonable response to the, to the conflict, where is it coming from? Yeah, like if it's a fire, what's the fuel that's feeding it? Yeah, and I feel like this is starting to get the core of our show here, so we better lay out the questions we need to answer this episode. First of all, there is conflict, that's undeniable, but what are we actually fighting? Like, what's mm. actually causing the problems here? Second, what's the alternative to that kind of dialogue mm. that we're having? And third, what would be the end game of that alternative? How does it lead to something better? Mm. Yeah. And that's a lot to look into. And actually, I didn't tell you ahead of time, but I've got a bomb to drop here. No way, because I kind of got one too. Do you want to do it at the same time? Okay, let's do it. All right, one, two, three, boom. Wait, the, the Bible? Well, believe it or not, this text that a lot of people see as a source of conflict and a book entirely about conflict and wars and so on actually has information hidden within it that can be potentially an antidote to what we're talking about here. Huh. But tell me, what's this love of self thing? Oh, that? That's the, that's the fuel. How so? Well, let me explain. So love for ourselves is intending benefit only to ourselves and not to other people unless it somehow serves our own interests. So if we're thinking and doing stuff in our lives and we don't factor in at all the needs and considerations of other people and by extension the common good and by extension from that the Lord who is the desire to help everyone, that's when we're living a life of self-love. We're thinking only about ourselves and the people that we see as somehow being in our circle. 
So everything that we're doing is really for us and for our own people. If we do anything for the greater good, it's just so that we look cool, as everyone thinks that we're a good person. We already know this mindset from the movies. It's a classic movie formula. Somebody's living a self-centered life and they're kind of a jerk, but then some whimsical events happen that snap them out of it, and then what's the feel-good ending? It's that they start to care about other people, and they start to think about their impact on other people, and they realize how much better of a life that is. As we mentioned before, it's interesting that love of self doesn't just mean us. Because you can be full of love of self, but you're still very affectionate toward, let's say, your own family. But in this case, love of self loves other people because it sees itself in them. You love your people because you see them as part of yourself. It's not just genetic. We might consider someone one of our people just because they like us, or they praise us, or they agree with us. So it's not just physical similarities. It can be mental similarities or similarities of opinion that make us feel like someone is ours. It's important to know that this attitude is to some extent naturally built into all of us, but it's crucial for the sake of genuine love that this self-love is subservient to higher loves and truths, and not the one running the show and always having the last word. Ultimately, with the love of self-ruling, while there may be little highs, it's all temporary and anxious and eventually cycles back into misery. For what it's worth, the love of self is the main love in hell, and it's what makes hell hell. Oh, I get what you meant by the love of self being the fuel now, so maybe this is a good moment for me to talk about how the Bible ties in, because the Bible tells us something about our history as a human race. It's encoded in the language of correspondences. But if you look back in Genesis, there are a few stories that tell us how division started to occur. The first of these stories goes all the way back to Adam and Eve, and it shows us a time in the human race where we started separating external things from internal things. Eve means our sense of autonomy, that we have our own life that we're not really dependent on God. And Adam is the rationality that goes with that. And the serpent who entices Eve to eat the forbidden fruit and she persuades her husband to eat it means that perspective from the point of view of our senses where we feel separate from God and separate from other people and so on. Once this perspective came in, it was a separation of external things from internal things. We no longer think internal things are that important. We're very focused on external things. And so we're not looking at motives anymore. We're looking at external things. And this is something that causes a lot of divisiveness in the human race, even to the point where Adam and Eve in the story are driven out of the Garden of Eden, which is being led away from the point of view where we're even listening to that voice of God anymore because we've become so focused on external things. Another division that Swedenborg said is hidden in the Bible stories is between beliefs and love. The way it's supposed to work is that love is supposed to be primary and beliefs are simply supposed to point us in the direction of love. And we see this in the story of Cain and Abel in the Old Testament. They're brothers, they're supposed to love each other. And yet Cain becomes jealous and he kills Abel. And this is a picture of Cain meaning our belief system, our thought structure, killing loving kindness, which is able. Over time, we think, well, my idea is better than your idea, and so on. It's become separated from love. This even cuts us off from heaven, because in heaven it's crystal clear that love is the most important thing and that beliefs are only there to serve it. So Cain and Abel is a picture of another division that happened in the human race that's led to all this divisiveness that we've been experiencing for thousands of years. And the third one 
is separating what is temporal from what is eternal. This is a common human affliction. What's really most important is what is eternal. Swedenborg says that the Lord, his divine providence, is paying total attention to what is eternal and only seeing what is temporal in that context because what's eternal is real. And even something that lasts for hundreds of thousands of years in this world is relatively unreal because it comes to an end. So you imagine the situation in a family where you have a falling out and people don't talk to each other, but then all of a sudden someone's on their deathbed and you realize, oh, we've been fools. We don't even remember what we were fighting about because the love is eternal. That particular circumstance was something temporal. Human beings have a tendency to separate those things and this causes another kind of divisiveness. So we come by this honestly, friends. We've been working at this for thousands of years to get into this situation. But it's not impossible for us to overcome it. There actually are ways in which we can reconnect with the mindset and the attitude of heaven and bring that heaven once more down to this earth. So we've established that love of self is a problem, and now we know why it's around, but now I want to look at the effect it has on disagreements. And it just so happens that we have the perfect laboratory conditions right here. In case you're not aware, it's a tenet of Swedenborg's worldview that you can never spiritually judge another human being, meaning you can never claim to know what's going on in their spirit. And this would include the motives they have for the actions that they take. This makes it really difficult to examine love of self in arguments because you never really know who's coming from it. But I've been granted just for this section, the ability to make spiritual judgments on piano keys. So we can see their conflict here, but if we look at the root of this conflict, it's love of self. How it plays out is that your primary interest in this situation is yourself. You want the entire situation to serve you. Look. Low sounds are clearly superior. Low frequency sound waves travel farther, which is obvious proof. But what's the reason that he loves low notes? Because he is one. That's actually the driver, not the way that low notes sound. Actually, if you took him and moved him up high, wouldn't he still be talking about how great low notes are? Because it's the low note he loved before, right? No, look what happens. Obviously, high notes are superior. Low notes are just this grumble. It's just noise. Why this transformation? Because love of self views everything through the lens of self, or reacts to it based on how it relates to the self. So suddenly ideas that we accepted before because they were for the self are now rejected because they're against the self. But what's the big picture here? Love of self makes us forget the whole context. This is an instrument. It's designed to make music, not to make it so that one set of keys feels like it's the coolest. To come from the place of how can I be better and right within this system rather than how can this system make the best music is to totally have everything upside down. And Swedenborg says that's exactly what the problem is. It's great to take care of myself, but I gotta take care of myself as part of a whole that's doing something bigger and better for the common good. And getting into conflict is inevitable. We have differing ideas and some of those ideas are not compatible, but within every context, we can be examining our motives to see, are we really looking for the best outcome or are we looking for our outcome? Are we in it for ourselves or are we in it for the music? At this point in the show, you may be saying, you're trying to solve a human problem, which is the, the divisiveness between people. It's sort of a psychological thing. Why are we bringing all this spirituality and spirit-like stuff into it? Well, according to Swedenborg, there is a spiritual force at the core 
of the things that caused these arguments in the first place. He said that literally divisiveness is coming out of hell. And this is in Secrets of Heaven 5718. Spirits of a certain kind want to be in control and to be the only ones ruling everyone else. For that purpose, they arouse enmity, hatred, and conflict among others. I saw the fighting that results and in amazement asked who they were. I was told that they are the type of spirits who stir up this sort of trouble because they aim to wield supreme and solitary power in accord with the maxim, divide and conquer. And because the spiritual world is constantly involved in our psychology, now when you feel this urge to fight and win and dominate, it's not just, oh, this, this is something that I like. This is hell trying to get it so everybody's all scrambled so that they can get what they want. And that's devious and it's the opposite of God. God is the opposite mindset and actually union is the primary driver for God. This is from Divine Love and Wisdom 170. The grand purpose where the purpose of all elements of creation, the whole point of life, is an eternal union of the creator with the creative universe. And so this is a system that God has built into the way everything is, but that system is kind of messed up right now because all of all the events we've discussed thus far, that system for unifying is busted, and it's actually the, the unceasing effort of divine providence to bring that thing back into alignment. First, there was a marriage of goodness and truth in the universe and in absolutely everything in it that the Lord created. Second, this marriage was broken up in us after creation. Third, it is a goal of divine providence that what has been broken apart should become a whole and therefore that the marriage of goodness and truth should be restored. Everyone can see on the basis of reason that if there was a marriage of goodness and truth in everything that was created, and this marriage was later broken up, the Lord would be constantly working for its restoration. This means that its restoration, and therefore the union of the created universe with the Lord by means of us, must be a goal of divine providence. Divine providence is always trying to unite us, but uniting doesn't mean homogenizing. You can maintain unique points of view without having hostility around them. And there's an imperative to that uh, that Swedenborg talks about in the Bible. This is from his Doctrine of Life 73. Being reconciled with our brother or sister, you know, which we're commanded to do, is turning our backs on hostility, hatred, and vengefulness. It's not that those things don't exist or they're not around or that we're not going to encounter them, but we can turn away. You know, even if we've been engrossed with it, anytime we try to go back towards the light, there's a route, there's a road to get in there. So if we can just realize that we're going through that process and so is everyone else, so if we can stop demonizing those we disagree with, we might actually find out that we share similar goals on a deeper level. In Swedenborg's day, there was a, the hot button issue was church doctrine. It's not as much now, but then that was this like primary disagreement. He described the trouble it causes when we really fight about that hard. A doctrinal view is united when everyone loves each other or displays charity. Mutual love and charity bring such people together into one despite the variety among them because it draws unity out of variety. When everyone practices charity or loves each other, then no matter how many people there are, they share a single goal. 
the common good, the Lord's kingdom, and the Lord himself. So we can apply this to any category of opinion. It doesn't have to be religious. It could be political. It could be social issues. If we're looking to the common good, we are united despite if we think there's a different way to get there. So heaven's agenda is to unite, but that's hard. You know, how do we get there? How do we do it? Well, one thing that we know just bogs down the mechanism is to hate your those who oppose you, to, to demonize people with different ideas, because God knows more about everyone than any of us do. He gets the whole picture, and he loves everybody, that, that when you know everything, you love everyone. This is Spiritual Experiences 4619. Out of sheer love and mercy, the Lord wants to join us all to himself. From the same source flows all the goodness of love for our neighbor as well. The Lord is present in this love because it is the love that he himself feels for every human being. He enters the truths of our faith only by way of these two kinds of love. So truth is whatever causes us to care for others. And think about that definition of truth, because here we're talking about usually what we think is true is what causes us to be mad at everyone because they don't have the same truth. But at its essence, because the way that the universe is actually set up, God is love. God has set things up in a way so that when you see the truth, truth, when you know all the factors, you will have this love. So angels and God look at people as they're looking at where they're coming from, not just what they do, why they're doing it. And we want to get to that same position ourselves, right? And a crucial way we can start to approach that is through the, the art of dialogue. And so we've got some tools here that can really help us get closer there. And so let me say a little bit about how I think dialogue is much more than just you and me talking. I have a little mantra, a mantra's little phrase that helps you to remember something that's really deep. And this mantra goes, nobody knows everything about anything. Therefore, dialogue. You see the world from your perspective. I can't see it from your side. You can't see what I see from my perspective. And so I need to learn from you what you see that I can't see. And when I say see, I don't mean just visually. With the whole of our perception abilities, including thinking, and vice versa, you from me. So we need to be in dialogue with each other because our very nature as humans is we always want to know more. And I cannot know everything by myself. Nobody knows everything about anything, therefore dialogue. When I think about what my hope is for dialogue, a verse comes to me out of my Christian tradition, Romans 12, 2. Be not conformed to the world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. So the purpose is to create understanding. The Hebrew word for mind that I've learned from my Jewish rabbi teacher is that it can mean perception, it can mean the reasoning faculty, the capacity we humans have to enlarge our perspective and therefore be renewed as the verse says, renewed in love and respect. Many people resist dialogue because they think it's going to homogenize the religions and make us all into one New Age humanist community. Well, we do dialogue with the people who would love to see that happen, and there could be much good in that. 
but our purpose of dialogue is to make sure the person who believes that is good for the world is going to also understand what the Ethiopian Orthodox person thinks is good for the world. For the purpose of increasing understanding, enlarging perception that increases the love that we are meant to have and respect for difference. These are excellent principles to use, but what about when we've already gotten in and we've got active conflicts going out? How do we try to put those fires out? So Dr. Sonia Werner, a good friend of the show, is gonna share a few thoughts here about how do we get past these sort of perpetual arguments that we have. Because nobody's born knowing how to do this. It's a matter of learning some skills. In a very different book, True Christianity, number 443, there's a little description about what does it mean to be a moral adult? And it goes through different stages. And the fourth mature stage is be deliberate and purposeful. So that takes some planning. That means you have to almost like premeditate. I'm going to learn how to handle an issue. I'm gonna be deliberate in my actions as I try to be charitable. And being charitable doesn't just mean, oh, peace and love, just let anybody say anything they want. No, it means actually actively engaging in a conversation with people in a charitable manner. So my goal is to kind of pull in the reins when I self-examine and to try not to have a love of dominion too much and then to be deliberate and purposeful. If I know I'm about to have a conversation with somebody who disagrees with me, I accept from the beginning that we agree to disagree. And we try to do that in a careful way so we can start with a respectful attitude of agreeing to disagree. That's in contrast to trying to enter into a conversation with sort of an attitude of, I'm going to win this argument. I'm going to um, surprise them with an attack. They don't know that I'm going to have this conversation, so I'm going to come in and I'm going to say such brilliant things that I'm going to win. No, that's pull those reins in. It's just becoming more dominating, destructive, et cetera. And it doesn't really help the other party be the best they can be. We've been using modern examples. This is what's going on right now. This is how we deal with it right now. But according to Swedenborg, written into the narrative of the Bible through correspondences is this whole pathway to overcoming divisiveness. And this is the kind of thing that really, you got to see through the eyes of a child to really get. Well, I don't know if that's true, but we did it anyway. You'll see, we had some kids help us tell the story of Hezekiah and how that relates to us overcoming divisiveness. This is the Old Testament about Hezekiah. Okay, this is a story from the Old Testament about Hezekiah. Oh. Go ahead, say it again. This is an old story about Hezekiah. In the Holy Land, there's Israel and Judah. Hezekiah is the king of Judah. Israel and Judah was once one kingdom, but now they don't get along. But you need to know the backstory. Hezekiah's dad, Ahaz, was a bad king. He served other gods, not the Lord. He was at war with Israel and went to the king of Assyria for help. 
and paid him to fight against Israel for him. While he was there, he really liked the look of King Assyria's altar and wanted one just like him. When Ahaz came back home to Judah, he built an altar, just like the king of Assyria's. Not a good move. The king of Assyria went to battle against Israel and won. The king of Assyria made Israel his vassal. That's someone who needs to pay money to someone else. But the king of Israel decided not to pay one year. So the king of Assyria put him in prison, besieged Israel, and eventually took it into captivity. By this time, Hezekiah is now the king of Judah. Unlike his dad, he's like he's a good king. He lives by the Lord's commandments. Knowing is the right thing to do. He wants to cut ties with Assyria. He takes down the Syrian art altered. The king of Assyria is not so happy about this. He comes to attack Hezekiah, Judah. Hezekiah pays him to leave him alone, but the king of Assyria isn't happy with just the money. He wants Hezekiah to serve him, so the king of Assyria pressures Hezekiah to do so. Hey, you be my ser servant. I'll give you 2,000 horses. Hezekiah says, No, I don't want your horses. Hezekiah succeeds in resisting the king of Assyria, but he is scared. He goes to the Lord for help and, and talks to the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah speaks for the Lord and says, Don't worry, the Lord will protect you. That night, the angel of the Lord comes and kills 185,000 Syrians camping. So the king of Assyria stops bothering Hezekiah. So Hezekiah succeeds in resisting the Syrians. Assyria came for Hezekiah. Hezekiah got badly sick and prayed for the Lord to heal him, and he got healed. The king of Babylon heard that Hezekiah was sick and sent an envoy to him with gifts of his condolences. 
Hezekiah welcomed them in and showed them all of his possessions. This friendly exchange is really a picture of Babylon inviting Hezekiah to join an anti-science alliance. Isaiah knew something like this would happen and tells him that because he's made this deal with Babylon, all of Judah will eventually be taken into captivity in Babylon. Just as Isaiah prophesied, some king's lady, the Babylonians come and take Judah into captivity. why the prophet Jeremiah says thus says the Lord only when Babylon's 70 years are completed I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place for surely I know the plans I have for you plans for your welfare and not for harm to give you a future with hope so even though that story just seems like it's a bunch of people just going to war with each other all the time, mm. kind of the opposite of what we're talking about, there's a hidden message in there, an internal message about how we can be freed by God from this love of self that's such a problem in the first place. Wow, and it seems like quite a nuanced message in the yeah. sense that it acknowledges, hey, you are likely to get stuck in this stuff. Yeah, totally. You and the whole world can get stuck in pride and all that kind of stuff and desire to dominate. But... There's a way out, and if you just follow certain truths, they can bring you in yeah. time out of that love of self. Yeah, and you because it's it's really to me it's a message of hope that you might see your own life or or that this day of the world how it is. Oh, there's so many people that have so much animosity. How do we ever get through this? But what the story is showing is that that's happening in every person, and so communally, the divine providence is working to free all of us mm. from the love of self. And a key example of a truth that can lead us out okay. is when Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, it's not enough just to love your near and dear, or the people next door, right. or whatever. You actually need to love your enemies and those who are persecuting you, and so on. What an amazing thing, but that can bring us in that direction. Yeah, and it's, it's a radical concept, but Jesus is saying it, so it's gotta be something. It's difficult, but we wanna arm you with like every single resource we mm -hmm. have on this. First of all, the first step I feel like is we gotta not assume that we know where other people are coming from. You know, they don't, we did a show called How to Respect Spiritual Boundaries in Relationships, and that's all about how if you go in there saying, I know why you're doing this, I know what's mm. up with you, it's just gonna trigger people. It's just gonna cause more problems, you know? Yeah, and another truth is that you can stand up for what you believe without hating or attacking others. Yes, and we actually did two shows that relate to that. The first one is called How to Love Your Enemies, where we, we try to expand on that statement from Jesus. And the second one is, why do we fight each other? Again, trying to examine this whole thing. Mm. Another interesting point concerns conscience. Like there's some forms of conscience that divide us from others and from God's love. But conscience is really designed to connect with altruistic love in order to guide us correctly. Yeah, I wish we did a show about conscience. Oh, we did! Oh. We did a show called Conscience, How to Build Heaven in Your Mind. And another principle is God, in God's eyes, 
every single person has value rather than just being a problem in your way, an obstacle to getting what you want. We tried to unpack that a little bit in our show, Three Simple Ways to Love Everyone. Mm. And getting up towards surely the top of a list is forgiveness. Mm -hmm. Forgiveness will go a long way toward healing divisiveness. And we just so happen to have a program called Rediscovering Forgiveness to hopefully be some help. And humility is another good one. I know we're running running through these pretty quick, but we can't have wisdom unless we acknowledge that we've still got a long way to go. And to throw you a bone, here's a little short clip about wisdom and humility. So with all those resources, we got a a task ahead of us, but Mm. I think we found the reasons to do it and and the promise of how cool it can be if we get over it. So I'm feeling pretty optimistic. Mm. And it's been so fun getting to talk through the whole thing with you today. It's it's great. And I have to be honest, I've got 20 million love dollars in my heart for you right now. (laughs) See, it's going to be okay. So we found out that love of self may be the toxifying element in our public and private clashes of ideas. The presence of this love of self isn't the ideal or the original human condition, but it's here and we got to be aware of it. Hell is trying to divide, but God brings together. And even stories in the biblical text are there to equip us to overcome our now inherent divisiveness. Do you get it? Yeah, I think so. Okay, so we should really not be putting ourselves over everything else. And we should be looking at our motives to see what our real intentions are in conflict. Yeah, I guess we should because it's the right thing to do. Well, yeah, that's one reason, but the real reason is because it's better. And not just better for the whole in an abstract way, but better for you. Because being part of a whole that's really together and humming and benefiting from the common good that we all contribute to is a much happier life. Ironically, the happiness that our ego is looking for in superiority, it isn't there. Because you can only find it when you give up your self-ambition for ambition for the cause. You know, he who loses his life will find it. Because you can just play these, or you can just play these. But it's nothing compared to when you put it all together. The divine imperative isn't that you're never going to have conflicting ideas or that we can never stand up for what we believe in, but in everything it's important to remember the end game. And the end game isn't just to make sure that you have center stage or that everybody else you don't like that's in the band gets kicked out. The end game is for all of us to selflessly, compassionately, and with an open mind keep asking, how do we make the best music? Two, three, four.